Hey there, this is Emily letting you know that in this episode of Bibliophiles, we're serving up another installment in our Lit Period series, our tour through Western literature's literary periods. That means, as always, that we've already taken notes for you, so you can just sit back and enjoy the show. To download the notes, visit our website at www.centerforlit.com forward slash lit period eight. That's www.centerforlit.com forward slash L-I-T-P-E-R-I-O-D, the number eight. We've also provided a link to them in the show notes for this episode. So with that out of the way, let's begin. Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit podcast network. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to new bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Hello, my literary friends. Welcome back to Bibliophiles. Adam Andrews with you once again, surrounded by my loving Center for Lit crew. My wife, Missy. Hi. My son, Ian. Well, hey. And my daughter-in-law, Emily. Hello. Welcome, guys. Guess what? What? (laughs) That was well done. It's time (laughs) for Lit Period, a special edition of Bibliophiles, where we take a literary period from the history of Western literature and dive deep into its contextual details to see what sort of gems we can find along with recommendations for reading in that period. And today on the schedule as it turns and yields up its treasures is the Anglo-Saxon period. Yes, sir. The Anglo-Saxon period is under the bibliophiles microscope for this edition of lit period. And I am going to uh, throw the conversation open to other experts as we go through the who, what, when, where, why and how of the Anglo-Saxons. But I will weigh in to just get us started as someone with some passing experience of the history of the Western world to contextualize us here at the outset by answering the when and where question of the Anglo-Saxons in its broadest terms, by which I mean the Anglo-Saxon period is in England between roughly speaking the middle of the 5th century and the middle of the 11th century. So, for example, beginning in about 410, when the Romans withdraw their troops from the British Isles to go solve uh, more pressing problems having to do with Germanic invasions back in Italy, up to the Norman conquest of 1066, when the Normans come in and kick the Anglo-Saxons out at the Battle of Hastings. So, middle of the 5th century, 410 or so, to the middle of the 11th century, 1066. In between those two periods, or those two years, is the Anglo-Saxon period. And it, it might be surprising to think about uh, great literature being produced in that period, because it does cover what we uh, traditionally, colloquially think of as the Dark Ages. So tell me, guys, in that period of English history, uh, what kind of stuff is being written? What kind of things are going on? Who is active? Why should we care as book nerds of one stripe or another? Historically speaking, I think it's important to also note that between 410 and 1066 is the Christianization of the British Isles. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. 
Well, actually, I think that there was some Christianity present before all of the invasions began. And the Christianity then, of Constantine, perhaps? Yeah, exactly. And then when the invasions began, it got papered over entirely by a paganism that was pretty defined and pretty settled and rooted in that tribal community that you see reflected in epics like Beowulf. But then in um, around 597, as you mentioned, um, St. Augustine comes over and he starts his missionary efforts to Christianize the heathen in Great Britain. You said 597? 597. Okay. And then Christianity creeps back in. And it's not too long after that, that Christianity is the going concern in the British Isles. And it always has been since then. Culturally speaking. Culturally speaking. Yeah. Yeah. But the, li- the literary tradition really didn't get up and up and swinging until until King Alfred's era, right? The King of King of Wessex in the seven hundreds. Mm, more or less, although there was a Kent, uh, a king in Kent, King Ethelbert was his name. There are lots and lots of kings in this time period because of the tribal nature of the different people groups that popula- uh, populated the area. If there's a guy in charge, he picks up a sword, calls himself king, and sets out, out to kill all the other kings. And yeah, then he, and he lives to be 30 because of bad weather right. and bad nutrition, and somebody else takes his place. <laughs> bad nutrition and occasionally sword fights. And yeah. Then, yeah, that's it. Exactly. <laughs> Ethel Rudd or Ethel well, Burt or Ethel something. Ethel has A's or R's, and it's like rock and Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it turns out Pope Gregory <laughs> sent St. Augustine to Christianize Great Britain, and he told him to start in Kent with King Ethelbert, Mm -hmm. and he was very successful there. And so it turns out that the very first documents that we have um, in Anglo-Saxon come from the Christian king, Mm. the first Christian king, as I understood. This is actually true of most of the documents that we have left over in Anglo-Saxon, primarily because the writing public were mostly monks. Right, they were the scholars of the era, and so the monastery was sort of the seedbed of all literature of the period. Hmm. Yeah. So this means that the that the great works that survive to us from the Anglo-Saxon period are uh, uh, maybe maybe this is a question for you guys. Does that mean that they are overwhelmingly religious in terms of their content, in terms of their concerns, literarily and artistically and otherwise? Sort of. Uh, you can't say they're overwhelmingly one thing or another because so, you know, in a broad literary tradition uh, in, in like English, for example, English proper, there are so many genres with so many works per genre that it's hard to define overarching thematic content, right? Which is one of the reasons this great conversation is so much fun to, to dive into and porpoise around in. Mm-hmm. Not so with the Anglo-Saxon literature. We have about, and it, pr- primarily poetry, by the way, there's some histories, but this is a culture that favors oral tradition and favors sitting around fires and reciting in sort of sing-song poetic fashion the history of their people. And so most of the poetry that survives um, does have a religious component to it, but there's only 30,000 lines of it total. Whoa. I mean, you can actually sit down and read the entirety of Anglo-Saxon in a couple of weeks without too much trouble. So there are 30,000 lines of Anglo-Saxon extant in the world today. That's it? Yes. In the oh. neighborhood of 30,000 lines of poetry. So if survive. you're going to try to master a particular period of English literature, this would be your best choice, this really. Didn't one. one of your <laughs> professors actually say that once, Ian? Yeah, he, used to say, he used to say, I wanted to be a PhD in English literature, and I thought, let's choose the one with the smallest source text. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I love not it. a lot of Anglo-Saxon leftover to read. But you're right about the religious thing, and this is because the majority of the writers of the era were, were all monks. But you, you absolutely cannot read and understand Anglo-Saxon poetry 
without being willing to acknowledge that it's a religious exercise. It's all a really, even the histories are a religious exercise. Which isn't to say that every story I'm thinking predominantly of Beowulf is mm -hmm. a Christian story because I understand Not that as I understand that particular epic, it was a pagan epic that a Christian was retelling. And so there's this kind of um, intermingling of both pagan and Christian mm -hmm. ideas in the text. Is that right? Well, there's a lot of debate about that and, and what was going on there, but there are elements of paganism and Christianity in there. Hang on a second. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves just a bit because we're into talking about the what of Anglo-Saxon literature, Beowulf, and, we ha and we've only very briefly mentioned the where and the when and skated over the who pretty fast as well. So well, let's talk about the... The okay, who. Go ahead, Missy. Go let's ahead. Talk about the who. Okay. So if you want to talk about the who for a minute, we skated over King Alfred a little bit. And right. Let's I go thought back to he King was pretty Alfred. interesting as I was reading up on this for today's conversation. Um, see, King Alfred was king from 871 to 899, according to the notes that I have access to. And he repelled the Viking invasion of Great Britain at that time. And he was a patron of literature and a, kind of a culture maker and oversaw the translation of some really important works into Anglo-Saxon beginning uh, I guess he, in, in the process, compiled the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, which was this year-by-year -year record of very important events that was kept until 1150. Wow. And so he himself gets credit for the survival of Beowulf. Beowulf survived like a fire and all kinds of things like that. Um, they're pretty sure that the text was corrupted um, one way or another. But the fact that it remains is kind of remarkable, and it's to his credit that it does. So not only the poet of Beowulf is one of the important who's of the period, but also the poet's patron and presumably the protector of the text, King Alfred. So is there anything else about the who then of Anglo-Saxon literature that we should mention? I mean, uh, there's one, there's ahead, one other aspect of the who that might be important. So in the seventh century, I don't have a specific date, but in the seventh century, uh, Bishop Theodore is sent from Rome to England and his own, he, he had a bit of the Greek about him is the way that it was put to me. And his instinct was rather than bringing along with Christianity as so many other um, missionaries did at the time, bringing Latin along as the language of God and the language of the church and enforcing the learning of Latin on all who would convert, he thought to himself, actually, we should be preserving and translating all of these important Christian works into the dialect and the text, uh, into the vernacular, into the text of the people that actually live here. Mm -hmm. And Alfred was sort of a, um, of the same mind. So those two are, are partners of a sense, at least in their aims for Anglo-Saxon culture. Their goal is to take a Christian ethic of some kind and wed it to, in a poetic way, the culture that they found in the Anglo-Saxon world naturally. Not just the language then of the Anglo-Saxons, but also the culture, more broadly speaking, of the Anglo-Saxons. Is that what you're saying, Ian? Absolutely. Ah, Absolutely. that's very interesting. And I can see them um, in, in their evangelistic efforts, kind of taking Christianity and looking for bridges with the culture, in a mm -hmm. sense. Well, that's just what Ian was saying, isn't yeah, that right? Is that what you're trying to say? That's exactly what I'm trying okay. to say. I thought that was fascinating when I read Beowulf. Oh, it is. It's it's totally fascinating. But we're, that would be firmly on into the which one is it? Into the, the what? The yeah, what? the what. So the let's what. go on into the what. Well, I just want to make sure. I mean, I like to go. Well, I'm, I mean, a, I'm a plotter. I'm a plotter. I want to there's plod through. Lot, there's not a whole lot more to know about the who here because we don't know who wrote what. 
um, in, in particular from the earliest works of Anglo-Saxon literature, we have vague guesses at best about the authors of these various texts. There are educated guesses. But like Cademan's hymn, for example, might have been by a guy named Cademan. And Could maybe Cademan, but also the Venerable Bede, right? Be, no, it was equally likely to be Kuhnwolf. Oh. They sound like the same guy. I promise they're not. Cademan and Kuhnwolf, two different fellows. They Does, both could have what, Was Vener the Venerable Bede really responsible for the ecclesiastical history of the English people? Yes. Um, that's the, yes, that's the running theory that the venerable, venerable bead was heavily involved in all of these things, but although he actually, wrote Latin, one, of though. Arguments, one of the arguments about Beowulf's origin has to do with the fact that in poetic style, it's similar to some of the writings of Bede. And oh. so dating it, which has been very, very difficult as it is with all Anglo-Saxon works, the best dating guesses that we have come to come down to the fact that it displays some archaic poetic meter. That's really similar to the way that Bede would have written. So we date it in Bede's era, generally speaking. That's a That's thin basis of a statement, isn't it? So like the 700s? Mm -hmm. Yeah, between 620 and, and 720. And in there, some, in there somewhere. In, in the mid-6s to the mid-700s, broadly speaking. Wow. Is when we date these kinds of things. I, I think the reason I wanted to stay in the who for a minute is because I wanted somebody to say, the who of Anglo-Saxon is largely a question because of the fact that the most famous works of the period are anonymous. Yeah. I mean, or anonymous. the author is unknown. Well, I think we're, we're talking about the what and there's nothing to do, but go. So let us do it. Let's talk about having mentioned the when, the where, and the who of Anglo-Saxon. Let's talk about the literature itself. What are the titles that we should be familiar with? Well, obviously Beowulf. That's the one that everybody's going to know from the period. Okay. And after that, we get down into the weeds of shorter poems almost immediately. Beowulf is the longest work that survives in the uh, Anglo-Saxon language. It is about, oh, I've, I've lost my spot in my notes, but it's about 3,000 lines long, I think. Mm -hmm. 3,170 some odd lines. A, a tenth that, of Anglo-Saxon literature, in other words. Yeah, it's a whole tenth of the entire corpus <laughs> all by That's itself. Amazing. Right, and, and the rest of it, there are some longer works. There's some beautiful pieces. Um, the Wanderer comes to mind. There are a couple of really pretty poetic meditations, but none of them are nearly as long or narratively driven as Beowulf. There are some important works for dating the language, like the Battle of Malden, for example, is an account of a particular battle. And the funny thing about the account is that it has almost nothing to do with anything important. It was a minor skirmish over a particular tradition in the era um, called the Ware Guild, which is essentially a, a, um, a death debt, as it were. A right? man they, price, right? Yeah, a man price, exactly. So if you killed somebody that was somebody else's relative, then they had a right to enact from you the price of, of that particular death. And if you couldn't pay it, well, then had a battle. Your head. had a battle. So basically revenge. Right. It's a revenge culture. Exactly. And this is, this is absolutely um, just peppered throughout all of the literature of the period. These were, people, these were people for whom death is the main preoccupation. It's death, it's uh, success in battle, or it's exile. Those are the main thematic trends of Anglo-Saxon literature because the entirety of their culture came down to a really pivotal, pivotal relationship between a retainer and his uh, lord, his master. The whole society was organized into these little, these little families, essentially, that weren't defined by uh, biology, but were defined instead by people sticking together in life. And there was oh, a guy so in fealty. charge. Right, exactly. It was a fealty. And there was a guy in charge, and it was from him that your... Uh, your family, your, he gave you your wife. He gave you a place to live for your entire family. Everybody lived together. He gave you all of the money that you would make. He gave you all the weapons that there were to fight with. And he, by his actions, ensured for you a place in the afterlife, right? Think Vikings. These are Vikings mm. people, mm. okay? And so be, because of that, 
the world that the poet is stepping into is one where, in particular, the idea of Jesus Christ, a suffering servant, doesn't make any good gosh darn sense to mm. anyone. Mm-hmm. Nobody gets it. So there's all kinds of evan- evangelistic dilemmas throughout this period of time. For guys like Theodore. Really powerful. Yeah, for guys like Theodore and Alfred and Cademan or Coonwell, for whoever the guy was, that make this a really interesting period. But like mom was saying a second ago, Beowulf is not and should not ever be read specifically as a Christian work. The interesting thing to notice is that it's a non-Christian work that absolutely cannot help itself with its references to Christianity Mm -hmm. because this period is one of sort of a melting pot between these two cultures. Christian, Christian ethics and a warrior ethos are getting smashed together and blended at every level of society. Well, and I don't know that that's random. There are people who think that they're put, the two ideals are put in the conversation with one another in Beowulf, the ideal of the pagan and the ideal of the Christian. Oh, yeah. So it's not just a, an accidental syncretism. No. Nope. Right. That's really interesting. Can you talk more about that? Well, uh, take, for example, Beowulf himself, who dedicates his life to warrior culture uh, and comes up short in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, which is better, the strong king or the weak king? Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it's mm. it, reading to the end of that, the question is left open. There's, right. there's, a, there's a very intentional undercutting of the warrior ethos, even while praising Beowulf for his feats of strength and his heroic deeds. And you get it out of his shield bearers um, comments at the end. Of, Wiglaf. Yeah, Wiglaf. Wiglaf. His, his comments to that point at the end of the story. So all mm-hmm. of that to say, to to support this idea that it's intentional, right, Emily? That that's not just a um, the clashing of two things uh, willy nilly or or by chance, but the but self conscious poets doing something on purpose. Mm. It certainly could be. I mean, well, we, and we can't know. There's but. some historical support for that, though, because the the non Beowulf parts of the Anglo Saxon poetic tradition. Um, are a lot more explicit than Beowulf itself on this project. Mm. I'm thinking particularly of the Dream of the Rood, which we may have talked about before in other, in other podcasts. But a, a quick reminder, it's about the harrowing of hell. It's about um, Jesus dying on the cross and des- descending into hell to do battle with his greatest enemy and rising victorious, which is a little bit of an easier pill for your average Anglo-Saxon warrior to swallow. Right. And so you obviously have a priest borrowing elements of the culture he's trying to minister to and recasting the the salvation story to line up with that so that people will understand. And it's probably, um, I will, I'll ask you, is this the first time in Western literature that the, that the personality of Christ as sort of a, a victorious warrior kind of emerges in, in literature? Is this the source of that, this particular culture, this particular tradition? It's it's hard to be definitive about anything when it comes to history, but yes, as far as we're aware, this is sort of the first and strongest instance of the Christ-Victor model of of atonement, and and certainly the first narrative instance of the harrowing of hell as an idea. Mm. Um, uh, The cross not as an instrument of torture, but as a weapon that is claimed, stolen away from its own, from its original master, right, Satan, Mm -hmm. death himself, the cross is claimed as a weapon instead by Jesus, who does battle in, in his enemy's stronghold over those of his followers that, are, that have been caught up in death's snare and, and rises again. And all of that is a different, I mean, it's one of, I guess, four basic ways of, four atonement theories, right? We've got the, the recapitulation theory, the, the in, incarnational recapitulation theory, 
which is that Adam's fall left some sort of a loss to be restored. And so God became man to restore that, to restore that loss and, and to restore man to his originally intended glory, right? This is Athanasius doing his, doing his thing. And you've got the educational view, which, which is Christ as illuminator. Mm. Right? Christ comes down to offer us a new way to think about the world and to give you some, some proper teachings for living as his follower. And then you've got Christ as victim, God's honor has got to be satisfied somehow, and the perfect sacrifice to a perfect God is his perfect son, mm. Christ as victim, right? Christ as lamb. Lamb for the slaughter, the yeah. Right. But then the fourth one, and by far my favorite, and certainly the only one an Anglo-Saxon warrior could really get behind, is Christus Victor, right? The, the champion warlord descending into hell. Such a strong masculine picture of Christ. Right. Do you think it does any violence to the biblical narrative? How successful, I mean, how successful do you think that the Anglo-Saxon poet that penned Beowulf, how successful was he in capturing the essence of the gospel and recasting it in his own tradition? I think it's a lot less clear in Beowulf that this is going on. There are echoes of this in Beowulf, but in the, in the poem that I'm referring to, The Dream of the Root, it's extremely successful, very effective um, and partially because it's so obvious that these poets understood the men that they were, the men and women, that the culture that they were speaking to. Mm-hmm. Um, the speaker in the Dream of the Rood is the cross himself, who is personified and becomes a follower of his Lord, right? Mm. Becomes a thane, just like the rest of these guys. And he delivers this whole account of the crucifixion by saying to the person listening, to the listener, you sitting there by the fire in your mead hall, I totally understand why you are frustrated with me for participating in slaying our Lord. That is not the activity of a, of a loyal follower, and I get it. Let me explain. He ordered me to. So it's sort well, of an apology. It's an apology. Exactly. It's an apology for the Christian idea. Wow. And it basically says this, this is the Lord of all mankind doing things the way he wants to. Who are we to say otherwise, right. essentially? I didn't understand at the beginning either, but... Let me tell you, now that I have done my part, now that I stood firm and allowed him to die on me and have come out the other end of this, I can see the gift that he's given us all by defeating death. And here's the, here's the way this actually applies to Beowulf. So because of this really, really strong relationship between a retainer and his lord and, and the hearth being the most important thing going on in the Anglo-Saxon world, being exiled from home is the ultimate torture, right? And they sort of grab death and make death the ultimate exile, right? An, uh, an ignoble death, a death apart from family, a death apart from glory is exile itself. Mm. And so you have no way of defending yourself. You have no way of making any money. Any community that comes across you out in the wilderness would know that you'd been exiled from somewhere else and would figure you were untrustworthy. So this whole thing depends on being a member of a thriving community. And so what Jesus actually does by going willingly into that kind of exile is makes it so that exile doesn't exist anymore, not for a follower of Jesus. Death is defeated, and so is exile. Um, apartness from the Lord is defeated. It's, it's impossible, yeah. Yeah, that's no longer possible anymore. So when you read Beowulf, all of the difficulties associated with exile are present there, right? All of the problems with good kings and bad kings and whether they comport themselves well and whether they successfully provide for their followers, all of those kinds of things are met and contradicted and healed by the presence of this Christus Victor model of atonement. Well, and I think it works because of the relationship between the Lord and his things Mm -hmm. that 
the Lord is responsible for serving and providing for his things. And so in that way, we don't lose Christ, the suffering servant. And the things are then in submission to their Lord. And so they are not given the authority to uh, go outside of the will of their Lord. Mm. Right. So in that way, it's, it's a poetic twist, but we see the elements of the gospel there still. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Uh, and doubly interesting if you, if you think that this is um, a great literary achievement to, uh, on the part of, of presumably Christian authors and artists to cast these gospel ideas in the language and culture of paganism. That, that, makes, uh, that makes the literary tradition compelling to me for some reason. Mm-hmm. Are, there other, um, are there other works of Anglo-Saxon literature that um, have bearing on this theme as well? We've mentioned Beowulf and the Dream of the Rood. There are a couple of Somebody mentioned the Pearl Poet a minute ago. Well, I actually want to uh, say something about that because that's a misconception that the Pearl Poet belongs in this period. He's actually firmly post-Norman invasion at the same time that the Pearl Poet was writing, Chaucer was writing Middle English. Oh, okay. They were contemporaries. They were, yeah, they were writing simultaneously. And it just so happens that the, the Gawain Poet wasn't, he didn't fall into the French influence of the language. He was trying to preserve. It's a backward looking. It's written in a strain of Anglo-Saxon, but it's a preservation. I did not know that. Fascinating. Yeah. So, so chronologically speaking, the Pearl Poet is a contemporary of Chaucer, even though literarily, linguistically speaking, he's a throwback to the earlier period. Exactly. I just got smarter. That's so interesting. <laughs> I love it. Other other works of the period, though, back to our to our sort of our religious uh, con- conversation. Um, Genesis B is an account of is an account of the the Garden of Eden narrative, essentially of Adam and Eve, that's written in Anglo-Saxon English. And what comes up when you read Genesis B carefully is that if Christ is the victor, the king then there must be some sort of an opponent and there must be some sort of a victim. And so this little triangle of relationships is sort of interposed upon the text. We've got Christ as the victor, we've got Satan as the aggressor, and we've got Adam as the victim and Eve as the victim. And so rather than making the listener the main character of the story, the king is the main character of the story. Mm. Always. Mm-hmm. Right. Anglo-Saxon it's Anglo-Saxon, right? It's about the king. Well, they the might have gotten that right. The <laughs> they might have gotten that right. I think this is one of the reasons it's my favorite period of literature. They, they got some things dramatically right. And so this is why Beowulf is far and away the, the best work of Anglo-Saxon literature, because that story is about the king and he's fallen. Yes. The story of Beowulf is absolutely about the king and he is, he is campaigning against a, uh, the right enemy. He's chosen his enemies well. Yes. And he's defending his people to a point. Yes. And then fallen motives begin to encroach even for Beowulf. And so right. that whole poem does an even more beautiful trick than the Dream of the Rude poem, which is a straight recasting of the, of the salvation story, right? It's an even more beautiful trick because it presents us with a world in which this kind of opposition is par for the course. And then also leaves us in tension at the end, yeah. looking for the true king rather than the earthly one, which is a which is a predisposition for us all. We're all looking for an earthly king to follow around, mm-hmm. and in particular, the Anglo Saxons, for whom that was the entire societal point. 
Mm. And the Beowulf poet comes in and says, I think perhaps there's salvation outside of our little world of dragons and gold and meat halls. So interesting because you can, you can see, um, you can see the author of Beowulf coming in to give meaning and explanation to the world in which um, the people that he's writing for live. Mm -hmm. It's, he's creating not just a piece of art, but a, um, a worldview for the people with this work of art. And in that, I I love to see that in a, in a far away and strange period, because um, that is, that's obviously true of periods more familiar to me and closer to my own time. Isn't that always the role of an artist to say, here are the great ideas filtered through and mediated through my own place and time and the culture in which I live and to whom I am writing it's happening in the Anglo-Saxon period as well, is what you guys are saying. Mm-hmm. I remember listening to um, a, a lecture that J.R.R. Tolkien gave on Beowulf, um, the monster and the critics. Um, and he was responsible, I believe, for bringing Beowulf into the canon as something more than just a relic of a particular period, but as actual art. And one of the things he talked about was the, he said the whole piece um, was was permeated with this kind of Virgilian sadness because these these men in tribes were joining arms against a foe, the darkness and death that was kind of always encroaching, and death was imminent, but that they were going to fight, 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 no matter what, and that there was, as a result, a kind of nobility that rose up out of this particular work of art. Mm. It, he talked about, I mean, and I, as he was speaking about that, I could kind of hear the seeds of his own body of, of literature forming. Yeah. The, uh, the leave taking of the elves and that sort of thing, the sadness yeah. that undergirds mm-hmm. those parts of his own work. Yeah. Yeah. A world oh, that's is... fallen and um, dying, but, the good men of the North uniting and, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Resisting. Well, yeah it's, a, it's a meditation on transience, right? Mm-hmm. Right. This is, a, this is a huge theme throughout the, the Anglo-Saxon corpus is the fact that things are passing away. And there's sort of a, there would be sort of a fear of that kind of transience if it weren't for the fact that this particular world is being currently Christianized as we read this literature. Well, and, and so, also it gives such place to the poet in this mm-hmm. particular in this particular world, because he is helping to immortalize those kings and warriors that he's singing about, exactly. and in a world where no fate or no glory um, is a life that's not really worth living, that's a really important role. Mm-hmm. Art, all of a sudden, is very significant. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Uh, uh, another question for you guys about the what of Anglo-Saxon literature, and then I have a, I want to change gears just a little bit. But this discussion so far has been, on the one hand, fascinating and, and fulfilling, but also a tad academic, if I could say it. Um, are it does the fact that, that to, to get into Anglo-Saxon literature and mine it for its, for its nuggets of value, you have to actually do a little academic type discussion. Is that a barrier potentially? I mean, is there, is there an easy, a low barrier to entry to the casual reader of Anglo-Saxon literature that we can recommend? 
Oh man, there's so many great translations to jump into. It is firmly a different language, so you can't just pick it up and read it. That's more yeah, of the reading translation. Yeah, Middle English is a little bit easier to pull that off with. Um, you could you could perhaps if you if you liked languages, go to with a dictionary and a Middle English book, and enough of it would be sensible to you that you could make it work. But not in Anglo-Saxon literature; it's a whole it's a whole other animal. But that said, there are all like I said, some really really great translations um, ranging from the historically focused, really really specific, let's preserve everything about this language type translation to some more poetic and and beautiful and narrative focused ones. Also, the I think you mentioned this before, Ian, but none of these works are very long either, are they? Uh. Uh-uh. I mean, the no. Dream of the Root is a is a it's a it's a poem, right? Like a fairly fairly yeah, nice. poem. Four hundred four hundred lines or something like right. that. It, I never heard of Genesis B before today. Is that short as well? It, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, we have pieces of it. They're they're bigger chunks, and then we'll, we're missing a bunch, and then there's some more, and and so it's sort of in fragments. But Beowulf is really the only tome that we have from the period. I really liked the wanderer and the seafarer. I thought those were beautiful. And what are those, Emily? Oh, it's been a while since I've read them, but it's, it's like a coming and a going. And it's, it's kind of a metaphorical picture of life on earth that the difficulties of, of wandering on the road and then the voyage beyond to what lies ahead. Mm. Like eternally. And and this is, like I said, there's there's those main themes of Anglo-Saxon literature. We've got transience and eternity, mm-hmm. and then we've got exile and return. Mm-hmm. And the wanderer is about exile and return. And just to address your comment about how academic all this is, yeah, there are also if you're reading Beowulf, there are some cool monsters. I think when when I teach this. Um, the kids love it because it is so unbelievably atmospheric and, you know, it's got all the great, um, all the great parts of the adventure hero story. They're all present and it's cast in, in the Christian tradition. So you've got the, the monster Grendel, um, and a swamp hag, um, Grendel's mother, and they're the descendants of Cain. Right, who who are, are aliens, right? Exiles, exiles, um, because of their their sin. And anyway, I think it's got all the parts of great, just great hero stories. Whether you're interested in the academic portion or not, it's, it's got heroes read. fighting dragons. It's got lakes of blood. It's got magic swords. It's got yeah. That's you're you're right. So before we talk about the how of Anglo-Saxon literature, I wonder, Ian, if you would be able to treat us to a line or two as an introduction to the actual language itself. You mentioned a minute ago that it's a different language altogether and is only susceptible to translation at the hands of someone who knows both Anglo-Saxon and English. <laughs> right. Right? Right. That is true. But you, but you can learn to pronounce it. You can. Um, you, are, you are taking your life in your hands by asking me to read Old English out loud to you and furthermore, taking the lives of our listeners in hand. Yeah, but now that I've mentioned it, they all want to hear. I'm sure they do, but let me just issue a wholesale apology to any of you who might actually be Anglo-Saxon scholars yourselves. I was told during my uh, pronunciation projects at college, um, my professor shrugged upon a reading of mine. He shrugged and he went, it's fine. It sounds a lot like French the way you read it. (laughs) And that was not a compliment, right? That was not a compliment. No, it was not a compliment. This is not... Um, exactly how Anglo-Saxon is supposed to sound, but it'll give you an idea of how firmly it is a different language 
uh, because pronunciations of individual words aside, the general tone of this will probably be somewhat similar. So with all of those disclaimers, I'll read to you um, opening lines from Beowulf. How about? Okay. Does that sound good? Yes. Love it. Okay. uh, Quick note before we do this, the opening syllable, if you want to be a hit at parties um, with a very, very small academic sort. um, (laughs) And who doesn't? The opening word of this is what, (laughs) which is quite literally what from the it's not it means listen or pay attention or hear hear or something along those lines right it's lend me your ears is what it is so the poet the poet who was going to be delivering the recitation for the evening somebody would be plucking along on some sort of stringed instrument and the the poet would get up and he would go what (laughs) and then everybody would calm down and pay attention to him this is beautiful okay well here we go um dr jackson if you're listening to this i'm so sorry So this is Beowulf. I'll do the first, oh, I don't know, 10 lines or something like that. What? We garden in your dagum. Third kuninga, frimnia thrunon, hutha ethelingas, elen fremedon. Oft shield shaving, shaven a threatum, monegum maigthum, modosetla oftea exode erlas. Suthan erest werth, feshift funden, he this frovra yebad, we ox under walknum, worth mundum tha, o that him I gwilch thara um sitindra, o verkondrade hiren shoulde, gombon gildan, that was God cuning. Wow, that's beautiful. Oh, oh, oh. I have it's no idea what beautiful. you said. <laughs> but it was. That's why he said it sounded like French. <laughs> well, it's not it supposed to be pretty. Awesome. It's not supposed to be pretty? Well, it sounds pretty when someone speaks, but it's it has a it's lot a more Germanic in common with language. it's a German it's language. It has more in common with German than anything else. So um so Athelingas. Athelingas, which it sounds really pretty in in my sort of reading, is supposed to be Athelingus. And that's an exaggeration, but you see what I'm saying, though. Like, there's a there's a peculiar lilting rhythm to it that you can get right and you can get wrong, and I sort of hove between the two of them. Uh, that was gorgeous. I'm really glad to have heard that. Thank you, Ian. Yeah, that's and thank beautiful. you, thank you for the limb that you knowingly walked out on by I doing that. Way, way out there. Few are the <laughs> men willing to be fools in public, and I apparently <laughs> one of them. But it does bring up something immediately, is because I want to transition into the how of Anglo-Saxon. How do these poets do it? I could hear. Um, certain rhythms, even you reading in a foreign language, I could hear rhythms and hear alliterations and hear things like that in the language that I'm sure were intentional on the poet's part and make the warp and woof of Anglo-Saxon poetry. Um, Can you guys talk to me about those sorts of things, the how of this literature? Yeah. So so Anglo-Saxon is written in what we call now alliterative half lines. So literally, as you looked at the page, there would be half of the words are on the left-hand side and half the words on the, are on the right-hand side and you read straight across. And the rhythm of the language, and in some cases, even the meaning of the language, is determined by which words rhyme or alliterate with one another across that divide between the two halves of the line. So the syllable that you emphasize is determined by which syllable lines up with the ones in the previous half line. And then here's the most beautiful thing, and this is just this is what made Anglo-Saxon an addiction from my perspective. Um, it's a small language, not a ton of words. Um, 
in, in some cases, small enough that they invented some, right? Kennings are a, are a, uh, uh, an Anglo-Saxon sort of a tradition, and mom can probably tell you a little bit more about what those are and how maybe some favorite poets of ours have used them in closer to modern times. But the idea is to slap a couple of words together and borrow from both of their meanings in order to make a new word with a new sense, poetically speaking. And in Anglo-Saxon, not only are, are there kennings all over the place, but also each word has three and four definitions in some cases. And so the poet, knowing all of the meanings for each individual word he's using, is playing intentionally on all of them at the same time. Oh, wow. So a listener to Anglo-Saxon would be, would be getting an absolute explosion of poetry because they're aware of the depth of the language. Mm -hmm. So when we're going along translating, we have decisions to make. And you can see in different translators doing this differently. So they read along and they see the alliterative half lines. They go, okay, so this word is alliterating with this word. These words have similar senses in this area. So we're going to lean our translation towards the commonality between these two words. And then that filters how they translate the rest of the poem. Oh, that's so they get a very narrative, very narrative sort of interpretation over here and an extremely poetic interpretation over there mm -hmm. because he's decided to, to lead with different translations of different words. So in The Dream of the Root, for example, which I had to translate the entirety of when I was in college, in The Dream of the Root, there's a line, hold on, I, I should find this line for you specifically because it is very, very interesting stuff. Mm, okay, so there's a line that reads in translation, I beheld a beauteous tree uplifted in the air and wreathed with light, brightest of beams. Obviously a description of the cross, right? But it can also be translated, and in this context, given what I said a second ago, it should also be translated. I beheld a beauteous tree uplifted in the air, brandished by light, the tree of victory. Mm, cool. Okay, so what do we brandish? What does one brandish? A sword. Mm -hmm. One brandishes a sword. Of course. So all of that creative translating and creative writing is in service to the thematic import of the piece. What's happening is a, is a monk sitting in his cell seeing a vision of the cross, and he goes, look, I saw a cross, and there it was, and it was covered in gold. Isn't that crazy? And that's the surface-level meaning of the poem. But because of the way that the poet has organized the words in those half lines, we can look a shade deeper and recognize, I saw a cross that has been redefined as a weapon in the hands of a victorious Jesus. Yeah, brandished by light, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just by light, light but it's the light. It's light Christ himself. Light with a capital L. Wow. Very cool. Exactly. So that's the kind of fun wordplay that's present in Anglo-Saxon. And if you're doing a translation project, generally um, the kind professor will hand you uh, a translation to mimic and then say, go find fun other definitions and do an interpretation for me of this, of this poem. So you're not really getting into the grammar of Anglo-Saxon, just the poetry. Oh, what a cool project. So alliterative half lines is, is one, that's kind of a, a very common formal element of Anglo-Saxon literature. And then the combination of a small vocabulary with layers of meaning and definition for every word adds depth and nuance. And a lot yep. of these kennings, these, yeah, these what are the, metaphors. Talk about kennings for a little bit, Missy. Well, he already did, really. He's, he's talking about these very formalized compound metaphors um, that sometimes suggest potential ironies, like um, two that come up often are for example, the whale road or the swan's path, referring to the ocean. Mm. But really, um, for a swan's path, seriously, the ocean? The ocean is this tumultuous, um, turbulent kind of a place. And to term it a swan's path um, is, is ironic in the extreme, right? So there's poetry even in the creation of the kenning. And 
uh, you know, Beowulf is replete with kennings. I see um, artists like Jeremy Lee Hopkins, um, Victorian poet, who was sort of pre-modern in his sensibilities, doing something very similar in his coining of new words by, by juxtaposing, pushing together words in a new way, um, creating, you know, new tags, for example, um, to help us see the world in a different way. Beautiful. That's beautiful. As if it were not obvious already, let us proceed to the last question. Why? Why the Anglo-Saxons? I mean, a couple of things we've said today sort of argue against the Anglo-Saxons. There's not that much of it. It's all foreign. I mean, this even it belongs in the English tradition and it's in a foreign language. It seems to be concerned with a fairly narrow list of subjects and topics, maybe because of the small list of titles. Why should we be interested anyway? Why do all the work? Why get, go to the academic level in our conversations and dig up 6th and 7th and 8th and 9th and 10th century literature? I ask you. Well, I think we already mentioned the fact that the poem is really a noble expression of immortality when wielded by these Anglo-Saxons. And um, I think that's as good a reason as any. But I also think yeah. that the translators that you're talking about, the translations themselves are an art form. Mm -hmm. And, you know, reading the various interpretations, we, we get not only the original story, but we get their poetic casting of the original story. And it's beautiful. I actually want to piggyback on that, Missy. I think that, Beowulf in particular is surprisingly accessible mm -hmm. in, I mean, I've read several translations of the poem and, and I have, have the same reaction to all of them. Wow. For something from the dark ages, from a completely alien culture, maybe in some ways more alien to me, even than the ancient world, uh, this is a surprisingly accessible story. And I find it, ha it has the same power that all great literature has to reach out and say, human being? I thought so. Mm -hmm. And, and draw me in. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know what, what there is about it specifically that has that power, because if I'm, if I were to make a list of its elements, they would all be strange. Yeah. But not the nature. I mean, the nature of man is cast in universal terms. And mm -hmm. I think that's probably what you're connecting with. But even, even more than the nature of man though, is monsters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There are monsters in Anglo-Saxon. And um, it, this is, this is something that Tolkien as a thinker and as a philologist and as a uh, literary scholar brought along into the conversation about Beowulf. There's sort of a pre-Tolkien era of translations and conversation about Beowulf and a post-Tolkien era. And in the pre-Tolkien era, they sort of looked at the author of Beowulf as a failed historical poet mm -hmm. because so much of the other work in the Anglo-Saxon tradition was history. We've got Battle of Malden, like I was saying, Genesis B, you know, scriptural translations, those kinds of things. So they look at Beowulf and they say, ah, there's, there's a, there's a dragon and there's some kind of whatever Beowulf, or Beowulf and Grendel are or whatever Grendel is. And there's, this is not history. And so you did it wrong. And Tolkien comes along and says, dude, the monsters are the point. That's the whole point. This isn't failed history. This is poetry. Mm -hmm. This is literature. Mythology. And the power of the, yeah. And the, the power of the monster in mythology is to rehumanize the human. Mm -hmm. Because by looking at something so wholly other from ourselves, we're, we understand what it is that we are, what manner of creatures we are. I think there is something. So his whole translation leans that direction. Yeah. I think there's something to that. Because as you were talking about it, I'm 
sort of dissecting my own point and I'm trying to f- identify what it is about Beowulf that reaches out to me and says, human being, I thought so. And it, I'll tell you what it is. I figured it out. It's when Beowulf says at the end to Wiglaf, do not help me. I'm going to do this myself. <laughs> and he says it in the face of the second monster. He says it in the face of the monsters. They bring this out of him, this essentially fallen, essentially short-sighted, essentially selfish kind of a guy. And that's when I say, oh, this is universal stuff. This is Achilles pouting on the beach. This is Hamlet struggling with his indecision. This is every great literary protagonist that has the power to say human. And is, and it, plus there's monsters. I just think it's great. I wonder too, though, because we've been talking about how the Christian poet recasts the Beowulf story in order to retell the salvation story. And in so much as he was representing the king, um, could he not have been a Christ type sacrificing himself for the good of the community? And Who, Beowulf? Yeah, and Wiglaf's um, comments afterwards misconstruing his more noble efforts? Yeah, probably. I mean, every word in Anglo-Saxon has got four definitions, so maybe so. Emily, what do you think? Could be. Well, I was just thinking that I, I don't want to, I don't know what the demographics of our podcast listeners are, so I'll speak for myself, but as someone with mostly uh, European and uh, United Kingdom descent, it's fun to read an epic where the the culture is one that I came from. I'm not Italian and I'm not Greek. Mm. So this is my heritage. Right, <laughs> right. And it, it, the Christianity was paired to the Roman and Greek cultures and came up with one thing. And when it was paired to the Germanic British cultures that came up with something else kind of, and I think that's really fascinating. I had not thought of that before. That is really interesting. In a, in a way, Beowulf belongs to us in a, in a way that, uh, that the divine comedy doesn't. In a way. I mean, I mean, not, uh, not necessarily the only way. It all belongs to us because we're all human, but I see exactly Exactly. what you're saying. That is super cool. Well, you guys, what fun. Thank you for bringing your comments about the Anglo-Saxons uh, to me today. That, I, I go away richer indeed after this conversation. But that's going to do it for this edition of Bibliophiles and of Lit Period. Thank you all for joining us. Say, if you enjoy this kind of discussion, academic as it turns out to be every once in a while, and you want more of it, let me encourage you to check out the Pelican Society, which is our membership club for book nerds of all stripes, We've got webinars, forums, videos, resources for all things literary. Stacks and stacks and stacks of them, and we're adding more all the time. So come visit us today at pelicansociety.com if you're interested. And if not, we will see you next time on Bibliophiles. Until we meet again, my friends, happy reading. Happy Happy reading. reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.